G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Talking through issues around the push that's on right now to decriminalise drugs here in Australia. An important issue to draw attention to, decriminalisation is already a reality in the ACT, including drugs like heroin, cocaine, MDMA and methamphetamine. But there's rising concern that equipping or endorsing of drug users is a major misstep in public health policy. Well, our special guest today says one thing is absolutely clear. Availability, acceptability and accessibility all increase consumption. He says the quickest way to increase the consumption of psychotropic toxins and the inevitable associated harms is to give it legislative protection, or worse still, to commercialise it. Shane Varco is the CEO of Dalgano Institute. It's one of the 300-plus member organisations of the World Federation Against Drugs. Shane is back with us. Shane, a special welcome back to 2020. Uh, Pleasure to be here as always, Neil. Thank you for having me. Shane, we will touch on the ACT and whatever latest developments you might have there, but give us some insights here. Uh, Listeners all around Australia will be interested, what's happening in my state? What's happening in my territory? If the ACT already has these things, is it coming to my back door soon? Thoughts about what's happening around Australia? Yeah, look, it's it's a fair question. It's difficult to know exactly what's happening in the nuances of, of parliamentary settings. Look, all these initiatives start from usually an activist, and the activist will present a bill or a pro, uh, promote an idea, and then if they've got legislative sway or or some sort of muscle, what they'll do is then they'll they'll table it as a as an amendment or a or a a bill to change legislation. Now, late 1919, I think it was, or late 19, no, no, sorry, late 19, sorry, late 2020. Get my 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 millennia mixed up. Uh, the, uh, the there was a, a majority, uh, unfortunately, uh, in that in that sitting in the ACT, there was a majority pro drug activist politicians uh, in play. And in in the majority of the parliament, and what they did is they tabled uh, through the Greens primarily and um, some Labor uh, MPs, they tabled the idea of decriminalising drugs. Uh, again, with all the standard, won't go into the details of why the standard memes that they 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 muster and, and repeat and parrot uh, without really thinking about them, and just the idea of a new new job, uh, sorry, a new uh, a new an experiment, if you like, because they had that. The capacity to do that and had the numbers. They pushed it. We pushed back pretty hard, pretty quick on that, as did another other groups. We couldn't speak to it at, at length, uh, other than writing to, to it and commenting on it in the public square. We couldn't actually uh, do a lot of influencing because we weren't uh, ACT uh, ACTarians. I think that's the term they used. 
They're so uh, what happened was we said, look, there's cannabis initially, and we said, we know where this is going. We know where this is going to go. Uh, and, it's, and, and sure enough, within 18 months, they've now stepped into that, the rest of the place. And of course, now, now the, the argument is around what does decriminalisation look like and what does it smell like? Um, other states uh, with marijuana, for example, I think WA, there's the cannabis, don't, don't I misquote the name, the cannabis sort of party, it's not the correct term, but they, they got a little bit of sway and they did a Senate committee uh, into uh, inquiry into decriminalising cannabis or even legalising it and they sort of got that up. But the Premier McGowan came out point blank and said, no, it's not going to happen, as did Daniel Andrews in Victoria when the Senate committee into uh, decriminalising uh, cannabis in Victoria uh, we came to the... Well, not decriminalising, but actually promoting cannabis as a legitimate usage. And so the premiers came out and vetoed that. So that, that was good news because that is an insane act, to, to certainly to legalise or give legislative protection straight up to, to a substance use. But obviously decriminalisation is murky water, and that's a conversation we look at. I think Queensland uh, Parliament are, are looking at it. I'm not sure the details. I don't have anything fresh on that, nor, nor can I speak with any authority about their decision-making at the moment. Okay, so what we are aware of is that when one state or territory uh, moves in this direction, then others potentially will be hot on the heels. So if it's happened in the ACT, uh, there's discussion and there's activists at work in places like WA or Victoria or Queensland. We might be thankful that premiers might veto it at this time, but then things are developing in this direction fairly rapidly. Let me just bring yep. this down. When I think of this sort of thing, Shane, I just try to think of, uh, well, let's boil this down to what might be obvious and the issue of legalising or decriminalising drugs uh, is really trying to here meet a supply and demand issue here. And more supply reduces costs, demand increases, and then so therefore addiction increases. So uh, some simple logic to apply to this. Uh, how do you apply common sense or simple logic to where things are happening, where things are moving in Australia right now? Yeah, look, it's, this is where it's interesting. Anyone listening to this who's in the activist, pro-drug activist space, well, of course, will be, will be yelling and screaming, jumping up and down about the, the uh, conflict, um, conflating of issues. But I think it's really important that we do d define, and this is, I don't want to go into a, a long definition process, but decriminalisation, depenalisation, liberalisation, legalisation and commercialisation are all got their own unique nomenclature and definition frameworks. And, but it's, it suits the, the pro-drug activists to use uh, safer terms like decriminalisation and then, then give their <clears throat> coutured definition of that to sanitise it, to make it sound like this is a reasonable and fair and, and, and effective way forward. Considering if I start with the pretext, like the, the, the classic memes that are constantly peddled in the marketplace, the war on drugs has failed, drug use is inevitable, you know, young people are going to do it, blah, 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 blah. You know, we, we've tried this experiment, which are all memes that keep being parroted, but they're never actively questioned by the market because the, they've shaped the market. But the reality is in this country, Australia, we've never had a war on drugs ever since 1985. We, we capitulated and said with our harm minimisation platform, 
which, by the way, has three pillars. I've said this before. And the first pillar, the priority pillar of the platform as a health strategy is demand reduction. It's supposed to be the priority. And the other two pillars of supply and harm reduction shouldn't sabotage that one. Of course, decriminalisation has the potential, and very aggressive potential, to destabilise and undermine that first pillar. I digress. But we go back to the, to the notion of understanding these pretexts, and then you start floating your idea. It's all about manufacturing consensus. This is what they do. And then without a dissenting voice to actually call it out and, and challenge it, as we've done in the, in the New South Wales um, Senate Committee on Marijuana and Driving recently, we, all of a sudden the evidence hits the table and there's another argument in play. Or they go, oh, OK, we never knew this. So again, it's really important that we do understand that we have to define what these things are and why they've decided to use this and what model they think is going to work. And that's the real key issue here. Because as you've said, any permission-based modelling, uh, even if it's not intentionally set up to be a permission-based model, like decriminalisation, for example, the Portugal model, which they often you know, parrot as the, as the poster girl of you know, this policy, which is also a failing policy, by the way, and we've also... I dissected it and it, it won't work in Australia because it's a different, whole different culture of the way they operated in Portugal and now they're finding it's not working either and they've got all sorts of issues. But drugs under their system, all drug use is still illegal, right? So all drug use is illegal. <clears throat> so if you're caught with drugs, you are, you are fined and you, have, you can avoid the fine by going to, diverted to a, uh, intentionally diverted to a intervention program. Now, the argument of that is, and, and this is why it's important, that if that was the intention, the, the idea is to help that person exit drug use, not just tick a box so they can continue to use drug use. So the mechanism of decriminalisation was about reducing drug use and helping the drug user exit drug use. But what's happened with the decriminalisation models hijacked by pro-drug activists coming under the harm reduction radar with their cloak of care, basically all they're doing is giving a free pass to ongoing drug use. Because now we know in all these places like Oregon, which have done this as well, is that people don't even bother showing up to their clinical things. And so their fines just keep mounting and they just keep using. Because as you said, Neil, drug use, psychotropic, the use of psychotropic toxins impacts capacity and agency and, uh, and all the decision-making that goes around that. So you can imagine the chaos that this increased permission, which is what inadvertently happens to use drug use, happens. And therefore, you've got this ongoing problem that just burgeons into even more and more difficulties. Substance use then burgeons into substance use disorder, which burgeons into addiction. And away we go. We might enlarge our conversation around the thought of chaos because those sorts of experiments have been happening, as you say, Portugal, as you say, the United States, uh, really there mm. along the entire West Coast. Oregon was the first one to move, and uh, there's all sorts of decriminalization or even legalization in other states in the United States. And if you're mm. saying those are like experiments, some might be saying, doesn't Australia need to have its own experiment? Uh, do we have to have an experiment? What are your thoughts here on, on whether we need an experiment when you can look at all the experiments failing around the world? Correct. I mean, that, that answers its own question, Neil. I think uh, the, the difficulty with this is 
is when you have a desire or an agenda that you want to see happen, and the pro-drug activists have managed to to work their way into policy frameworks, to decision-making frameworks, to, to policy interpretation frameworks, we bump into them all the time. And it's hard to find uh, any um, clear anti-drug uh, protagonists in with any control of the levers of policy and policy interpretation. Because, again, the harm reduction model, which, again, we've always in, emphasised as a valuable model in helping... Uh, maintain the health of drug users whilst they exit drug use and not whilst they keep using drugs uh, ad infinitum without accountability or with our best health practice of transitioning out of drug use. And so we've got these experiments that they're saying, oh, it's going to work in America, we're going to do this, and they've unleashed it uh, in, in the way that this ultimately goes. They've done it quite quickly, and the consequences are, are breathtaking. And it is the damage and the harms that are being done. And, and basically, they're, they're literally throwing... If, if they care about the addicted person, which is the claim for the decriminalisation mechanism, which we know underneath it all is not the case, not everybody who promotes decriminalisation, of course, is a pro-drug act activist. They are genuine harm reductionists who hate drugs, who want to see people get off drugs. But unfortunately, the pro-drug activists, they control the levers of policy interpretation. And they are promoting this aggressively. And they're literally, those who would most need this policy to help them exit drug use are literally thrown to the poison. We've said this in a number of places. They are throwing their addict to the poison. They are enabling, equipping, endorsing and empowering ongoing drug use with greater and greater resources. No accountability, greater vehicles. We've done it in Australia for years. Um, and our welfare system is, has managed to keep a lot of that hidden but it is growing, and with permission, these issues grow, and the ability to be productive and and uh, ongoing. And of course, they always wheel out a so what they call a functional drug addict who pays their taxes and goes to work. But they are less and less and less, and they are exceptions to the rule, proving the rule. Uh, and so it's it's really concerning to watch the lack of care and forget public health you know, best practice. That's off the table already. We, obviously, the public health budget is slammed by this, and we're now seeing. I know, for example, Monash University Health. Uh, sorry, Monash Health. I know people inside Monash who've spoken to me about this, and the number of drug users, older drug users, who have been using, you know, arguably for you know decades, functional drug users, are coming in with increasingly more difficult uh, complication, health complications, and the burden on their system is overwhelming. They said, "We can't manage this." And no one's doing anything about it. So, well, this should have been stopped years ago. But it wasn't stopped because, again, we continue to endorse, empower and equip drug use with ejecting rooms, syringe programs, naloxone. We just give everything they need to, to keep using drugs rather than helping them exit drugs. All those vehicles can be useful to exit drug use, but they're not tasked to that end, Neil. That's the big problem. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson. On Vision. 1-800-316-316. Our talkback line is open. We are talking about drugs today. Shane Varco is our guest. He is the CEO at Delgano Institute. 
one of the 300 member organisations in the World Federation Against Drugs. Dalgano is a health education charity and uh, unrelenting in their uh, battle that uh, they're uh, continually engaging in. And so we're talking about the chaos that can come from decriminalisation of drugs and things are already underway here in Australia especially in the ACT, and as we've been hearing, other states are already looking at these things, although at the present time, premiers are vetoing uh, the move towards decriminalisation of drugs. 1-800-316-316. Shane, let's take some calls. Let's first of all hear from Wayne, who is in Mackay. Hi, Wayne. Welcome along. Yeah, how are you, mate? Mate, I couldn't couldn't agree more with what the man's saying about everything, mate. I was a drug addict for 22 years, and I never ever planned to be a drug addict. So with this decriminalisation or legalisation, it's just feeding the problem. I mean, it drove me to commit suicide because, you know, a lot of people think they can just use it to calm them down and help them with the, the problems instead of dealing with the problems. I mean, to get deep down into the things that are causing you to do drugs or whatever the case and that's where I had to go I had to deal with everything that I needed to deal with to to, to not only be healed but to to get the freedom that I needed to be a normal person and not have to depend on drugs so it's just absolutely crazy if yeah a lot of them will think that it's a way out to stop the dealers from making big money that's that's only part of the issue I mean it's it's crazy it's just it's just going to yep. like overload the the health system. It's going going to just uh, uh, interfere with the relationship with with families and, and with everything. And I mean, it's bad enough as it is without it being legalised or decriminalised. It's yep. it's it's insane. Wayne, good comment. Uh, your thoughts for Wayne yep. Shane. Oh, look, Wayne. Thank you. And look, we respect and work very closely with the recovery alumni of which Wayne is clearly a part and his journey his lived experience and earned resiliency in this space is a voice that needs to be at the table and we do advocate for that because you know they talk to the current drug user who as Wayne said you when you're in it you just don't give a rip you know to, to use a vernacular you just don't give a rip all you want your next hit all you want to do is make the the perceived pain or the perceived problem go away. I don't want to deal with the issue. I just want to mask it. I just want to bury it. I just want to medicate it out of my, out of my emotional space. And then, of course, it comes back twice as hard. And we won't go into the whole patterns of addiction and how it works biophysically and mentally and emotionally and, and socially. But, yeah, the harms that are done by drug use are well recorded. In fact, the 2007 parliamentary inquiry into drug use um, and end up being titled the war drugs the war on drugs sorry the winnable war on drugs in other words they said in 2007 after a year-long inquiry we need to stop this because most of the comment uh, the content of that report was dealing with families recovering addicts and all the families of those who are currently using and the devastation is staggering and as wayne just articulated again and i hear this comment from from recovering addicts this is insane the same words this is nuts why would you Give greater permission to use this stuff. It just ruins lives. And so, again, the, 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 the genuine, if you like, genuine is the wrong word, but the, the attempt to change the narrative and the culture and to stop drug use, if decriminalisation was actually tasked to that specific and in, unalterable end of exiting drug use, this may work. Portugal tried it. 
and it worked for a little bit because they had a big problem with um, heroin deaths. But as it went on, they realized the pro-drug activists got behind it and then they started sabotaging it. And now they've got a problem that they want to go back to a, a, uh, an abstinence model. And so that's the, the thing that's interesting. Portugal now rethinking their whole strategy. And they're still, and we've spelunked their model as well. A good attempt and a genuine attempt at a health change in their society. But that's not what's happening in the US or Australia for that matter. It's, this is just a cynical exercise in liberalising drug use. So people can go and do their weed, their coke, their lines of coke without too much drama. They can do a line of coke and here and at parties and they get busted, oh, I'll pay a fine, go, to a, uh, go down to a local councillor for five minutes and nod the head and say, yes, madam, no, madam, and go away, the fine's expunged, and back I go do some more cocaine. There's, you know, again, this is what's this is what's happening, and uh, okay. and it's a and and all the masking around that is you know, to to try and make it sound like a sanitised uh, public health practice exercise is just a, a cynical game. Wayne, thank you so much for your call. One 316 to join in our conversation. Let's take another call. Jason is in Sydney. Hi, Jason. Welcome. Uh, yes. Uh, good morning, Neil. I just turned your speaker phone. That's all right. Um, what are your thoughts, Jason? Yeah, uh, well, uh, good morning, everyone. Yeah, look, uh, I am, uh, like you might say, the uh, canary, I think it was the canary down the coal mine mm-hmm. That's uh, right. in this situation. Uh, because um, I live in government housing uh, in New South Wales, we call it the Department of Housing. Or to even make it more absurd, it's called the Department of uh, Community and Justice. So that incorporates housing and jails, unfortunately. And believe me, that's poetic justice. Um, but in um, in recent times, we've had a neighbour who was evicted from the property, which took a year and a half. And she was getting like syringes and swabs and all this stuff that looks like it belongs in a hospital. And yet she was an IV drug user. Now, yep. I know... Um, but we live about 20 minutes away from a, a needle exchange place. And their rationale is that um, they are trying to do harm minimalization. And, and I'm sure something like 99% of them mean well. Um, but the, the drug dealers are still illegal. And we live, we literally live in a state of confusion because yep. uh, when, you live, uh, when you live in, say, Dunny or Nana and your nearest neighbours are a stone's throw away, uh, you don't, like, it doesn't greatly affect you. But when you live in government housing and they're on the other side of a sheet of gibrock and they're going through their psychosis and they're going uh, through all their pain, and as a, as a Christian and as a dad, um, it broke my heart to watch my neighbour sort of... Um, uh, uh, you might say uh, uh, failing over time. Jason, good to hear this insight. Uh, just a couple of minutes yeah. out from news. Shane, your thoughts for Jason? Hey, look, Jason, I, uh, to cut you off there, mate, I appreciate this. Your story is is staggeringly similar to so many we deal with. Uh, I have a relative myself who's on NDIS, fully funded NDIS because of a cannabis-induced psychosis. So and and when that relative goes off their psychosis management drugs, they are psychotic, paranoid. They do violence. They destroy their apartment. And guess who pays for that? NDIS taxpayer. 
And and that's just the fiscal cost. And that sounds uh, almost mercenary, but you, you hit the nail on the head. These precious individuals, these people are being thrown to the poison, thrown to it. They say, here, here you are, here's every means available to continue to put this toxin into your body that is destroying mind, body, soul, and spirit. And that cannot be, cannot be in any rational world, an ethical world. That cannot be good public health policy. And as much as they talk about net community benefit and you know, saving lives, and, and that's, that's the great mantras that they throw out, but the lives, they're not saving lives, they're, dis- they're helping destroy the lives because every single drug-taking episode could end a life. And so that's, that's the concern we have. Thank you so much for your insights, mate. As we take things a little bit further, why don't we take some more calls from listeners here? Sure. Mary is near Toowoomba in Queensland. Hello, Mary. Welcome along. Hi, Mary. Oh, hello. Hello, yes. Um, um, I did use marijuana years ago, but I found that it um, makes people very lazy and also it causes a great demand to a stage where people, it's bringing more people wanting to, needing to keep up the demand. So if they haven't got the finance, they're going to start robbing to get that. And also um, it's causing a lot of people unable to work because it creates paralyzation to their mind. And I went through that before I came off it. I mean, I just, I'm so grateful I was a miracle to come off it. But yes, so I've had that experience and I I certainly don't agree with making it legal. Yes. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Your thoughts, Shane, for Mary? Look, Mary, again, as I intimated in the previous session, that I have a relative who's on NDIS fully funded because of a cannabis-induced psychosis. And uh, it's interesting that, I'm not sure Mary's Mary's age, and I certainly don't want to to pry into that space. But if if you were using marijuana 20 years or plus ago, uh, the likelihood that your THC content, the delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, which is what gets you high of that of that use, unless you are hydroponically growing your own uh, and engineering it, you probably end up with a four to five percent THC. But what we've got now with the heavily engineered plant, I said that when when the pro marijuana activists talk about it's just a plant it's organic don't panic it's organic is one of their lines so this this what is concocted now in a lab basically or in a in a artificially grow environment has got no recollection to the original designed plant god created plant it doesn't exist anywhere on the planet if there, unless there's a place where no white man has basically been then uh, you won't find it and so it's heavily engineered now with growing rates of THC, so this is a normal grow for the buds, anywhere between 15 and 24% THC, and that's without, and, and of course engineering out CBD, uh, which is a can- cannabidiol, which is antipsychotic and in, in, has the potential to be antipsychotic in its properties, which kind of balances out the THC a little bit in, in the natural plant. It's been excised from the plant, and all the, this product, and then of course, then you extract the THC through various artificial mechanisms, and you get uh, con- uh, substances like shatter or butter, uh, and uh, that's vaped. And again, that's where the vaping issue becomes another huge uh, dilemma as well. And that that has a THC uh, contents between 80 and 95 percent. So you can imagine that why the psychotic breaks happen. And now we know from the science that. The use of high THC cannabis-based products uh, on a regular basis 
is now a substance that has twice the capacity of LSD to transition you from a psychotic episode to a psychotic disorder. Now, that's the science on so-called just-a-plant marijuana. So this is what we're dealing with, and they decriminalise this first in the ACT. Okay, Mary, thank you so much for your great uh, insight there. Marijuana makes you lazy, paralyzes your mind and increases crime. Uh, you might have your own insight to offer. 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Steve in Parks. Hi, Steve. Welcome along. Yeah, good night, Brother Neil and Brother Shane. God bless you both. And I thank you so very much for manning that telephone you're on now. Very worried about a friend of mine. He's in my age group, over 65. Recently went to his local doctor. And uh, without being asked, the doctor asked him, I, I want you to go on uh, medical cannabis. And he said, no. He, he said, well, in that case, you're not getting your medication. I know that the medical fraternity has been privatised and uh, globalised. But and that all doctors now are on gag orders as well as the nurses. I, I worry greatly that that will extend to all faculties of GP practice across Australia. Now, what's you know like we can't live in fear. Yeah, you know, because yeah. I'm worried about the side effects. Steve, of, you're making you know, a really good point here, and I bring Shane on this because we've yeah. had a conversation like this in the past where somehow or other the whole of society, even the medical fraternity, is elevating marijuana, medical marijuana, to a top-level uh, useful way of combating all sorts of illnesses. And uh, your thoughts here, Shane, for Steve? Well, Steve, thank you for that insight. And look, unfortunately, that anecdote is not a standalone. And that practitioner, that doctor, needs to be called to account. That can't be done. There cannot be the withholding of of medications based on an inability or, or lack of desire to take a particular so-called medication. Now, the only two pharmaceutical-grade cannabis-based medicines that have been fully vetted, double-blind uh, placebo, sorry, double-blind placebo uh, accounted for, uh, trials, fully vetted trials of medicines. Uh, basically, there's two main, there's two basic ones. One's a Pidiolex brand name, and another one's Sativex brand name. But they they've been on the market for a while. Now, one's for Dravet syndrome, epilepsy, uh, and it's a very it's a fourth line, uh, by the way, fourth line treatment, not a first line, and it has a 25% efficacy according to the documentation from GW Pharma. And still important and, and, and useful in some settings. And, and the other one is Sativex, which is uh, basically could use for spasticity and MS to help with it, a little bit with spasticity in MS patients and as an appetite stimulant. Now, that's it. That, those two are the only one. Everything else has got a free pass under the Vote for Medicine framework. And this is where it's interesting. And, of course, in 2017, WA doctors, not a single doctor, even after an aggressive push from the the WA government that's time said you must prescribe cannabis because people want it. They said, well, all doctors said we're not going to do it because there's not enough evidence. Now, what's happened since is there's been the, the cannabis industry has got into the ear of many people and they've been pushing very, very hard with anecdotes and they've convinced people to go and ask for it. 
And now they've got some, some doctors on board saying, you got, you're pushing this and promoting this. Now, this is not new. Pharmaceutical companies in America got caught out in this promoting opioids. They pushed opioids through their, their doctors and the, the, pharma, the, the pharmaceutical companies will end up being sued, you know, like Pfizer and GW, not GW, Pfizer and uh, some of the other big ones were sued because they were actively pushing their particular medication and asking doctors to do so. So this obviously, this doctor is doing the same thing and he should be brought to account for that. And of course, it depends also on what medication is being offered and why it's being offered. And this is really concerning because the science around cannabis as a pharmaceutical is very limited, even though 45 to 50 years of promises, this is staggering, the evidence is there, there's no curative properties at all in cannabis, none. It has some, some therapeutic benefits to some, uh, manage some symptoms of some issues, but has no curative or restorative practice, uh, properties at all, according to the current science. And that should be enough to go, well, what are we doing with this stuff? And so, again, uh, my concern is for your friend that he's, at least he stood his ground, he should report that doctor to the NHMRC and say, look, this is not, this is not what should be happening. Steve, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let's take another call. Janet is in Queensland. Hello, Janet. Welcome along. Hi. Hi. Thank you. What are your um, thoughts? Um, I, I don't think it should be legalised. I've... Um, had a long history of married to an alcoholic um, who, you know, and then he got sober and we went through programs and 12-step programs and, and that really helped us and we came mm. out the other side. Um, but now my mum has an indie, um, an acquired brain injury from alcohol use and he's just moved into a place with another guy that has an acquired brain injury. When my son moved in there, he didn't want to drink alcohol at all. But the other guy, he's allowed to, he, they're both allowed to drink because they can't stop them from drinking because what is called restrictive practice. So the other guy is only allowed to have three drinks because he is on all this medication. But the problem is the three drinks that he's having are creating that desire to drink all the time. So they're having all these behaviour issues because he's allowed to drink. So even and in the rehab, you've got a, uh, a, a process that leads to uh, the, uh, the inclusion of other drugs that are addictive, and uh, whether that's alcohol or other drugs. Uh, Janet, good insight. Uh, your thoughts for Janet, Shane? Well, Janet, I, I feel for you. Uh, look, that's <laughs> these the, again. These permissive practices are all about empowering the dysfunctional, uh, dependent, and addicted person, and caring for their rights and protecting their rights. But again, a lot of that is not all of it, but a lot of it is another cynical attempt by pro-drug activists to enable these this this contagion, which is what it is, to to remain in play for those around it. Now, if you look at behavioural um, developmental um, studies and, and research over decades and decades and decades, even up until uh, five, six years ago, they were talking about um, negative peer contagions and behavioural norms that infect uh, peer settings. For example, aberrant or, um, for the vernacular, sake of vernacular, you know, bad behaviour 
which is now becoming increasingly hard to define because bad's off the table as well, and who gets to say what's bad and what's good. But, but the, when, uh, even a, a big study coming out of the UK, if a 12-year-old, for example, is using drugs or drinking alcohol, the key is to isolate that 12-year-old from the peer group, not as a punitive response, but for restoration and assistance. But what they found is if they leave the 12-year-old in the peer group and that 12-year-old is allowed to continue to conduct themselves the way they are, that will infect the cohort and create further harms. So that, that was the, the best practice. Now they're saying, oh, no, no, we want to keep that person in the cohort and we want to teach the rest of the cohort how to manage their drug use not, by understanding the drug use problem. New Zealand, for example, here's another one. Uh, there was two, two year nine students using uh, crystal meth in a school. So the, according to the health, uh, the pro-drug health uh, practitioners in charge, they brought in a practitioner of you know, the user of uh, who understands the use of of crystal meth, and taught the rest of the year nines how to use crystal meth safely to enable those two users not to stop using, but to use more safely so they don't die. So all of a sudden you've got two drug users now have led the way by example to teach the entire year nine cohort how to use a substance. Now in what universe is that good public health practice? Okay. Janet, thank you so much for your contribution. 1-800-316-316. Look, let's come back to the chaos that may well be ensuing here in Australia. Uh, ACT has this uh, decriminalisation. Other states talking about it. Uh, As I would appreciate and listeners might appreciate, any police officer will tell you that people who are on drugs uh, more likely to neglect their children, uh, more likely to abuse a spouse, uh, more likely even to take a life. And even the overdose uh, thought uh, and connecting that with suicide as well is uh, obviously uh, an, a chaotic increase. Uh, those are the sorts of things people reflect on when you talk about a decriminalisation of drugs. Uh, is that relevant to talk about that, Shane? I mean, is this an overreaction to think that chaos might be on its way? Look, I, I think no. I think I think that's a valid a valid trajectory, Neil. I think it is, and I think and again we've got to be careful about conflating issues. You know, you know, trying to sensationalise and and you're not doing that. Of course, I'm not hearing that, but people can you know take it that way and then run with that, saying, oh, you're just you're scaremongering. But you're dead right. I mean, and in fact, there was a recent um, report just on that whole kin care issue. The Auditor General did a report on Victorian kin care. Now, it's interesting, this very carefully uh, choreographed report, to be fair on the report's parameters, it was to look at concerns of those who were providing out-of-home care and the large, the large contingent cohort in that, sorry, of, of people are kin care. So in other words, uh, relatives of the, 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 the child who's been taken out of a home because of neglect and abuse. And they're looked after generally by uh, grandparents or uncles, aunties, brothers, you know, whatever. And so they were saying the, the, the report was about the concerns of the carers and their lack of support, their lack of blah, blah, blah. And get this, there's been a, a 32 plus percent increase in kin care in the last three or four years in Victoria. And the number of children being taken, and now remember, they don't take kids out of homes easily. And they're ex- um, taking kids from their home, from their parental home environments because of neglect, abuse and harm. And the, the careful 
excising or the careful omitting is probably a better word of the d- alcohol and other drug component of that is is conspicuous to say the very least. We did a report on this about six years ago because we noticed the data was disappearing from the, the data sets around reporting on neglect and abuse and child, interve- child protection intervention. We noticed that all of a sudden about five, six years ago, the alcohol and other drug data just vanished or has collapsed into mental health issues. So in other words, oh, we removed the child because the parents have mental health issues. Not the fact that they were using meth or they were off their nut on marijuana and abusing their children. Oh, this mental health issues. Again, sanitising the drug use. And we know where that's coming from. We know that interpretive mechanism has been overlaid by the pro-drug activists in the system. And this is really concerning because, the, again, the genuine desire to destigmatise the drug user, which no one wants to be name-calling and abusing the person using drugs, but holding them accountable and helping them get off drugs, change, as, as that lady said previously about her husband, get making them accountable and helping them ex- exit drug use so they can be the parent that they're supposed to be. They can be the productive, caring, functional citizen they're supposed to be is good public health and well-being practice. Simply ignoring that, pretending it's not a problem, disappearing or collapsing the data into a mental health framework and saying, oh, well, it's a mental health issue, just keep funding it with you know, free syringes and, and whatever and, and uh, a welfare check. That's an appalling misuse of funds. But worse than that, worse than that, Neil, it's an appalling disregard for those caught in drug use and those are surrounded by that, those who surround that, that particular hapless uh, addict because the harm's being done and the chaos that they create within families, let alone their community, is disturbing. I often will come to the thought of being an advocate for the victim. And while you talk about uh, being anti-drugs and having a strong anti-drug response, uh, this actually is an advocacy for the victims of drug abuse. Stay with this chaos thought for a few moments, though. I mean, you know, child neglect, uh, abuse of spouses, uh, people taking their own lives and taking the lives of the people that they love that goes along with that. This also applies to other deeper issues, and I'll get your thoughts here, Shane. Human trafficking increases. Mm. Sexual exploitation increases. Political corruption increases. There is chaos that you can easily speculate about at the other end when you go through a process like this, decriminalising drugs. No, absolutely. I think the, the argument for the pro-drug, uh, the pro-dec, sorry, the pro-G, criminalizing uh, activist is that if you decriminalize drugs or more 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 importantly legalize them all of a sudden the the black market goes away well we know from what happened in america that did not happen at all in fact the black market uh, the illegal market increased and they had three markets the the black gray and legal markets for marijuana in america won't go into those details right now but yeah i can, I can tell you point blank without fear of contradiction Human trafficking, and particularly in the sex trade, and illicit drugs are inseparable. Inseparable. And in fact, illicit drugs are a tool in the human trafficking trade. And we argue uh, in schools and in community centres and in community groups and, and uh, other, other organisations that, that we, we uh, do our seminars in, and we, particularly our ripped-off seminars, talking about social justice and social responsibility, 
if you give, you know, people say, oh, we want human rights and the rights of the child and, and women's rights and violence against women and, and, and all wonderful, wonderful causes, at the same time doing a line of coke or sucking on a bong uh, or shooting up, you know, crystal meth or cocaine, uh, then it's like, hang on a minute, how does that work? Because these substances uh, and, and this illegal trade and even legal trade is used inexorably, uh, sorry, yeah, inexorably and inextricably with human trafficking and the exploitation of children. I've just been watching some research recently, which I will not repeat online on a year. It's so distressing, so overwhelmingly distressing, that what they do to children and use drugs to do it for the exploitation of those children by perverted, distressed, very disgusting individuals is mind-blowing. And if, and if any human being with rational... The, the modicum of care in any human being saw this, they would never touch a drug again and would never, ever say, this is okay. This is, and and, and in, any action that in, enables drug use to be sanitised or enabled or equipped or endorsed is, is a shocking slight against humanity. And, and I'll, I'll put that point blank, Neil. It is and against the the barbarity that's committed against children around the world because of drug use and sexual exploitation. And, and look, again, I could spend another hour on this alone, but it is really concerning. And again, if the actual casual drug user said, I'm not going to use drugs anymore, and if everybody did that, this all disappears. It, yeah. it, there isn't, there's no drug use, there's no abuse, there's no addiction, there's no, there's no mechanism or vehicle to do that. Shane, always appreciate the articulate way that you're able to demonstrate and talk about some of these things. Uh, just uh, great to be able to get your insights there. Uh, just let me ask you, because we've run out of time. Um, sure. Nobrainer.org.au uh, yes. and dalganoinstitute.org.au. When people visit those websites, what are they likely to see? Look, there's, there's any number of issues, things there for them. There's data. We, we don't, we don't uh, pride ourselves on uh, research into particular drugs. Look, there's all sorts of things about drugs online. But what we do try and do is add value in the whole resiliency building, understanding uh, the narratives around drug use. And we do really encourage people to go to our YouTube channel and look at our YouTube offerings. And look, by all means, subscribe while you're there. Click the, you know, hit the notification button and obviously click like on the videos you and share them. We want you to share them because we do tend to get under the, simply the, what a drug does, what a drug is, what a drug does, um, you know, why you shouldn't use it. We get under the radar. Why is that happening? What's going on in our culture? What do we need to change? How do we build resiliency back into our communities? How do we enable and equip communities to be healthy and, and grow in their well-being and, and be, ha be happy and productive and live full lives uh, free of the, the, the tyranny of, of uh, substance use? So they're the kind of things that are um, on both websites. And, and we encourage people to obviously they can join and sign up for our newsletter or become members uh, by, by signing a, an application to become a member. And we're obviously a, a not-for-profit NGO, so we're very keen to have uh, people join us and become members. It's not an expensive exercise, and uh, we invite people to do just that. Well, Dalgano Institute, as you say, Shane, a health education charity, 
And yes, uh, those friends that you can uh, build in a network of support, uh, those things are very important. And uh, for people to connect with you, to be standing alongside you in as they can hear the way you articulate these things, a very, very good way of talking about what is coming upon our Australian society. So for those who would uh, uh, be supportive, uh, Dalgano Institute, one of those worthy of your support, a health education charity, Shane Varco, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your insights and your heart with us today on 2020. No, my pleasure, as always, Neil. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 